All right, we are back. We mentioned at the top of the program that uh, Danny Schechter has passed on. I want to just read a word or two about him from the Who, What, Why website. Piece by Jeff Schechtman said, Some people are just ahead of their time. Sometimes they're in science or academia or economics, but sometimes they're in the media, and they see what we all will see long before it happens. Pioneering author, filmmaker, and media reform activist Danny Schechter was such a talent. He worked as a producer at ABC's 2020, where he won two Emmy Awards, and at CNN when it was newly launched. He was part of the media when it still made a difference, before it morphed into entertainment and ridicule. He wrote 12 books, including The More You Watch, The Less You Know. He understood the potential of the internet long before most of us. He was a leading activist and journalist against apartheid in South Africa. That work led him to leave corporate journalism to make six documentaries about Nelson Mandela and produced the cutting-edge television series South Africa Now, which aired on over 150 public television stations in the late 80s and early 90s. We will try to have more to say about Mr. Schechter in one of our internet shows. We will also try to search through our archives for our interview with Mr. Schechter, which was done quite some time ago. But as the Who, What, Why website notes, that while some of the conversations from the past that you may air with Schechter were dated, like the one that they were airing, They said what's amazing is how much of it is not dated and how much Schechter saw of the dystopian future of corporate media. We need people like Danny Schechter because I look at at PBS, which, you know, ought to be the good guys, and note that on Tuesday night they aired a program titled James Baker, The Man Who Made Washington Work. As described in the week, it said that the three most recent Republican presidents had an ace up their sleeve and his name was James Baker. Allies and enemies, including former Presidents Bill Clinton and George H.W. Bush, paid tribute to the savvy power player in this in-depth look at a career highlighted by his successes in championing Ronald Reagan's agenda and his brokering an end to the Cold War. Which prompts me to stop and say, what crap? They seem omitted his role in stealing election 2000 in Florida, in which he was the Republicans' go-to guy. Yeah, I guess that qualifies him as a savvy power player. How about also a subverter of democracy? Well, anyway, we did have to note with some glee the piece reprinted from the LA Times and the Bee about how Daryl Issa doggone it has lost power along with the the House panel's top post. Interesting piece in which it's noted that, um, well, doggone it, Daryl Issa used his position atop the House Oversight and Government Reform Committee to relentlessly poke at President Obama over Benghazi the Internal Revenue Service, the Fast and Furious failed gun sting, and any number of topics that made for high theater and cable cameos. But the piece notes that ICE's investigations often failed to show direct culpability on the part of the White House or Obama, whom he once called one of the most corrupt presidents in modern times. This is the guy who was, I believe, the richest guy in Congress, or at least in the House, having made all of his money with car alarms. He used some of his uh, private funds to basically engineer the recall election of Gray Davis, which put Arnold Schwarzenegger in the governor's chair. Issa had had his eye on it himself, but proved too unpopular with Republicans. Anyway, it appears that power has now been taken away from Daryl Issa and hopefully will not be given back anytime soon. And let's talk a little bit more about jerk politicians. How about Jeb Bush, piece by Michael Barbaro in the New York Times? which I have to quote from, because again, it reminds us why we need Danny Schechter's out there. 
Said the New York Times, in a general election, Bush would contend with the painful lessons of his family's previous campaigns in the state of Florida. His father, George H.W. Bush, barely clung to Florida in 1992 as the nation's voters turned to a young Democratic Bill Clinton. Eight years later, his brother George W. Bush was forced into a bitter recount and then a searing Supreme Court battle over the outcome in Florida. Hello, Mr. Barbero. Jeb Bush was engineering the theft of the votes of the state in which he presided over as governor. You know, I, I think that's worthy of some mention. And if we're going to bag on politicians a bit, I think we need a couple more. Let's, let's use America's 20 craziest politicians from GQ. Let's do Representative Glenn Grothman, Republican of Wisconsin. Asked just how crazy. They said, well, he really hates Kwanzaa claiming in a press release that almost no black people today care about Kwanzaa, just white left-wingers who try and shove this down black people's throats and never to divide Americans. He also declared that giving state workers the day off after Martin Luther King Day is an insult to all the other taxpayers who want to contact government offices. Notes GQ in his defense, it does seem like all the stores are putting up their Kwanzaa decorations earlier and earlier every year. And from citing an actual thing he said, we have... Did people even know what homosexuality was in high school in 1975? I don't remember any discussions about them at that time. Or also Representative Louis Gohmert, Republican of Texas. Just how crazy? Well, as a judge, he ordered a man with HIV to get written consent from any future sexual partners and claimed if an oil pipeline in Alaska were shut down, it would diminish the caribou population because, quote, when they want to go on a date, they invite each other to head over to the pipeline, unquote. And from the actual thing he said, Department, um, we have the fact that speaking against federal funds to protect endangered species, including some rare breeds of dogs and cats in China, he said, there's no assurance that if we did that, we wouldn't end up with Mugu dog pan or Mugu cat pan. And no, we don't know what the hell he's talking about either. Here's an item we've been sitting on for months that certainly has potential buried in it somewhere. New Scientist magazine noted in uh, its December 13th issue from last year that almost 98% of unsold supermarket food ends up being burned or dumped in landfill sites. That's according to a report issued that week by UK members of parliament. Only 2% of this perfectly edible food gets sent to food banks. That is sad, but I'm glad they're at least burning some of it. If you think of the uh, the potential energy locked up in food that's being put into landfills, we could probably close down quite a few coal plants. And by the way, the fracking craze is being cited as um, being somewhat helpful in, I suppose, the fact that all this extra natural gas we have is reducing the demand for coal, which is far and away the dirtiest fossil fuel that we burn. The current edition of New Scientist notes that the link between economic growth and rising greenhouse gas emissions may have been finally broken because last week we learned that carbon dioxide emissions from fossil fuels failed to rise in 2014. It's the first time that's happened without an economic downturn. And they're pinning us on the fact that uh, well, they're, they're shelving a lot of coal plants. Although we hear about how many coal plants are being built around the world, the stats seem to indicate from 2010 till now that about two coal plants have been shut down for every one that's being built, a trend that we hope can continue. 
And yes, we're going to follow the case going before the Supreme Court where they're trying to gum up the works on uh, efforts to control emissions, which were predicated on trying to cut the amount of mercury in the environment. The current issue of the week has a briefing on coal. Notes that burning coal produces roughly double the amount of CO2 than burning natural gas. You should note that current estimates say that 82% of the world's current coal reserves and 92% of the U.S.'s should be left in the ground to avoid future catastrophe. And of course, it should be noted that we have all these electronic devices we rely upon and we live in an electronics-driven world and we just need electrical power for everything and we use coal to generate, well, in the U.S., 39% of our electricity. Meaning that when you do the math, the average American uses 18 pounds of fossilized plant matter each day to light his or her home and power the television, computer, smartphone, and other gadgets we rely upon. And we should note that President Obama's plan to cut the U.S. carbon footprint 30% from 2005 levels by 2030, mostly by reducing emissions from the country's 600 coal-fired plants, are running into trouble. Red states with a big economic stake in coal production like Kentucky and Wyoming have accused Obama of launching a war on coal. They argue that the clean power plan will destroy thousands of mining jobs and cause at least a 10% spike in utility bills. Oh, we can't have that. I guess we should remind ourselves that even though there's a lot of problems with natural gas and fracking, etc., there there is an upside to it. If you look around the various bodies in the solar system, you will note that there appears to be pairs of collisions all over the place, possibly from asteroids that are uh, uh, orbiting each other, or in the case of entering a body, or in the case of entering an atmosphere, perhaps busting in two. It seems that one or the other might explain why it is down in Australia there appears to be two humongous asteroid impact craters. Piece by Terence McCoy in the Washington Post notes that um, under the crust of Australia near the East Warburton Basin in the center of the country is a very large asteroid crater, at least 125 miles in diameter. This uh, was discovered some years back, but on closer inspection, uh, scientists now think that uh, there's two large structures, each of them approximately 200 kilometers or 120 miles in diameter, meaning that together they would form a 400-kilometer structure, which would be the largest we know of anywhere on Earth. There must have been hell to pay when these things came crashing down, but uh, so far they've been unable to estimate when this happened. The dating of this has proven difficult for reasons I don't know, but um, estimates are they think it hit at least 300 million years ago. But uh, expert Andrew Glickson, who's been studying these impact basins, note that they can't find any extinction event that matches the collisions. But uh, we suspect this story is going to develop into some breakthrough along the way because, well, I mean, the Earth couldn't have been hit by two objects six miles across, each of them, uh, you know, equivalent to the dinosaur-killing impact 63 million years ago, and not have had some major consequences. All right, we've got about, I don't know, a minute and a half left. I think we should go out with some funny quotes, don't you? So let's snag a few. How about this one from Clive James? A fundamental difference between the U.S. and Britain is that in Britain, no one will talk unless he has a reason. And in America, no one will stop talking unless he has a reason. We talked at the top of the show, but unfortunately don't have any time to go into it, about how I've been finding some interesting pieces of paper as I try and spring clean and go back 25 years in my spring cleaning. 
I did note some paperwork we had and it was in pursuit of Gore Vidal. We sadly were not able to get Mr. Vidal for this program, but that would have been fun. But I got a great quote from him, which is that I've now turned 50 and I'm going through menopause and I enjoy a little litigation. It's costly, perhaps, but salutary and considerably less expensive than keeping racehorses or getting married. How about this one from Art Buckwald on, this, on, the, on the topic of liquid diets? The powder is mixed with water and tastes exactly like powder mixed with water. And here's one from P.J. O'Rourke, a person we were fortunate enough to have as a guest on this program. Said P.J., you can't shame or humiliate modern celebrities. What used to be called shame and humiliation is now called publicity. And forget traditional character assassination. If you say a modern celebrity is an adulterer, a pervert, and a drug addict, all it means is you've read his autobiography. And uh, in the category of dismissive reviews, you'd be hard-pressed to find a more succinct one than this, which would be Voltaire's commentary on Rousseau's Ode to Posterity. Said Voltaire, I do not think this poem will reach its destination. But how about this one from H.L. Mencken on the subject of Teddy Roosevelt? He hated all pretension, save his own pretension. And finally, we have this actual quote from Rick Sellers. He was the executive director of the Coalition for the SDI, Strategic Defensive Initiative, you know, Star Wars. Questioned about this screwball technology, he said, I don't think the American public wants to be bothered with the what, when, and how of lasers in space and things like that. Whether the technology will work or how much it will cost, these are peripheral arguments. That about does it for today's program. You've been listening to Radio Parallax. This show is produced as they all are by Edward McMillan. Our thanks to David's Poet Laureate, Dr. Andy Jones, and we will see you next week at the same time. Well, we hope so, anyway. <laughs>